Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. Welcome to the Cleveland Clinic Heart and Vascular Institute. We just completed another tall round symposium where we bring together our internal world-renowned experts to speak around a singular topic uh, and get the perspective of the various disciplines that manage these diseases. Today we talked about treating the bicuspid aortic valve disease and we heard from Joanna Gobriel, our congenital uh, heart disease specialist who talked to us about why and how this bicuspid valves develop Leonardo Rodriguez, the medical director of Aortic Valve Center, who talked to us about how patients present with these diseases and the indications to treat them. Melinda Desai, the medical director of the Aortic Center, who talked to us about the various multimodality imaging used to assess these patients. I presented a discussion about how we handle the aortic disease, the aortopathy that's associated with bicuspid valve. I presented a case. Dr. Johnston talked about uh, some of the newest techniques for minimally invasive surgical treatment of the aortic valve. And Dr. Krishnaswamy spoke to us about the transcatheter aortic valve options for patients presenting with bicuspid aortic valve disease. And we brought together this panel to have another brief discussion about going over some of the highlights of what we heard this morning. We've also asked Samir Kapadia the director of our interventional cardiology lab and a structural heart specialist to join us on this distinguished panel, as well as Sager Kalahasty, the head of our Marfan's Connective Tissue Disorder Clinic. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for all of you for presenting really uh, excellent uh, discussion of the key points and pearls about how to manage this disease. Joanna, I'd like to ask you a question first. You know, you told us that this problem, this abnormality, which is so common, occurs on day 30 of development. Pretty, pretty remarkable, in fact, that we have a valve, I think, that works at all for a lifetime. Can you tell us uh, how important is it to screen family members with this problem? It's actually important, especially that we know that um, there is a genetic contribution to bicuspid aortic valve. So if you have a case of um, a patient with a bicuspid aortic valve, there's an 8 to 10% chance that a family member, especially a first-degree family member, has also a bicuspid aortic valve, and they can be asymptomatic at first. So you wouldn't necessarily know. So it's very important to actually screen families with that. And so they won't always present with symptoms, which, which makes me roll over to Dr. Rodriguez, who talked to us about how they how they present. You know, um, can you tell us a little um, uh, about this broad spectrum of presentation? Uh, should we be thinking differently uh, in patients who have a combination of aortic stenosis and aortic regurgitation? How worried should we be about murmurs when, when a patient hears that, they've had a, that they have a murmur? And, uh, and then um, are there special recommendations about endocarditis and how to avoid it? Uh, great questions. So uh, in the community, murmur is probably the, the, the main reason for these patients to be referred for imaging. And again, the, the echocardiography usually can find the, the source of, of the murmur and often is, is bicuspid aortic valve. Uh, in terms of presentations, yes, most of these patients are asymptomatic initially. Uh, although, again, the minority may present already with advanced complications such as dissection endocarditis. But I think for, in our clinics, the vast majority are probably asymptomatic, and again, this picked up either by echo or by the presence of a murmur. 
Uh, I think uh, uh, in terms of the mixed disease, I think it has consequences in terms of the management. Obviously, this patient probably will not be able to be repaired if they have mixed disease, aortic stenosis, and rehabilitation. And then the discussion has to be early on that when the time comes for an operation, what are the options uh, in, in this regard? And finally, I think your question in, in terms of endocarditis is, is very important. Bicosbival is not included in the current guideline for mandatory uh, prophylaxis. But I think uh, some of us in patients that has uh, abnormal valves with regurgitation or stenosis, we, we discuss that with the patient, and in some of them, we actually still recommend uh, prophylaxis with antibiotics. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for handing all of my questions. Uh, Dr. Desai, would you, um, you talked to us about how important the multimodality imaging is. Let's say um, we have a family member that uh, has a bicuspid valve and they're told to get an echocardiogram. Is there something special our patients should know? I, I know I see kind of a, a lot of variability when I read echocardiogram reports from different places. Is there something they should know that they should bring to the lab when they get their echocardiogram? And should everyone with a bicuspid aortic valve get a CAT scan or an MRI at some point? So uh, those are great questions. Uh, thank you, Eric. Uh, Absolutely. If you are coming to a specialized lab at an experience center with a possible diagnosis of bicuspid valve, that needs to be communicated to uh, the sonography team that is going to acquire the images so that they can not only focus on understanding the morphology but ascertain the excursion of the leaflets. Is there any degree of AS, any degree of AR? and then they go through the steps of quantifying these. And similarly, LV size, LV function is obviously crucial. Uh, aortopathy, uh, as a lot of people uh, do not understand their risk of a potential concomitant aortopathy, so an echo serves as a first-line screening tool for that. Uh, so it needs to be, all these things need to be incorporated uh, in the initial assessment. Uh, in my humble opinion, every BAV deserves world-class imaging, and that involves uh, multimodality imaging. So at least once you should have uh, a tomographic scan. And the decision between CT versus MRI has to be individualized, especially in younger folks where potentially the radiation uh, exposure may be an issue. But in 2019, with advanced imaging techniques, uh, the amount of radiation we give is so little that it is rarely a deal breaker. The important thing is to get a high quality scan without motion artifacts. So gated CT or a gated uh, CMR would be important uh, at least once. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for that overview. And Doug, I love what you talked about when you pointed out that we want to look towards these patients with lifelong care, right? It starts at 30 days, but we're really thinking about a disease process that, that evolves over a lifetime. When you meet your surgical patients, um, and, and again, great presentation about a bunch of the minimally invasive options, but we know that um, you have uh, studied this in detail uh, about valve choice and have shown us uh, with the biggest series of bioprosthesis analysis uh, that it can be a good choice for folks what kind of conversation do you have with your patients with bicuspid valves who are often young who don't want to be in anticoagulation about how to make the decision of what valve to put in? That's probably the most common conversation that we have, especially with younger patients. And, and I uh, am very clear with patients about the difference between 
sort of the, the latest cutting edge data about newer prostheses or even our more proven prostheses and, their, and the guidelines. So I think it's important that patients understand that the, the guidelines, which aggregate a large body of data but may not reflect current practice, uh, suggest that patients between 50 and 70 years of age essentially can choose for themselves what valve they want based on data that suggests that their long-term survival is equivalent. And, uh, and, I, and we talk about the fact that with a bioprosthetic valve, they're more likely to have a reoperation. With a mechanical valve, the, the spectrum of potential complications is different. Uh, but the truth is there are patients in their 40s and even 30s who have lifestyle considerations that are just not consistent with Coumadin. And there are lots of options for those patients. As Dr. Pedersen suggested, uh, Ross or Ozaki or um, you know, some uh, more exotic procedures may be appropriate for some of those patients. But I think that we need to emphasize the fact that the, the most evidence exists for a relatively straightforward approach, which for a, a bicuspid valve patient with stenosis who's younger would probably be a stented bioprosthetic valve, which have very good proven durability. Even in younger patients, uh, many of those patients are going 10 to 15 years with their valves. And if we have an explicit discussion about what the first operation is going to be like, what that durability might be, and most importantly, what the second intervention could be which I think in 2019 is either a TAVR valve and valve or another operation, and we don't know yet which of those is going to be better. But we need to prepare the patient for either direction. And I think if we have that discussion and say, look, this is sort of like buying a maintenance-free appliance. It's going to need to be replaced at some point, and you need to monitor its performance. But if that's your um, lifestyle consideration, that's what we needed to support. Um, as surgeons and cardiologists, we're about the patient. So if, if this is someone who wants to be a competitive mountain biker, well, that's up to us to put them in a position they can do that. That's great. Very, very well said, which... Um, Rolls me over to our transcatheter colleagues. Thank you both, Amr and, and, and Samir, for being here with us. Amr, you showed some great cases. Uh, last night, I was in the OR until pretty late, uh, removing an infected transcatheter valve that was in a patient with bicuspid aortopathy. High-risk patient. He got the right thing. I was, and I was really impressed with how well the device fit in that bicuspid valve space. Um, uh, so I guess we're learning about, you know, what, what we can, how we can use that in the native valve. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe who with a bicuspid valve we really shouldn't be thinking about transcatheter valve, clearly the younger patients, but in that sort of older and intermediate range patients who we shouldn't be pushing for a transcatheter valve because the patients certainly want it. And then Dr. Kapati, if you could talk a little bit about the prospect of valve and valve uh, for, for, you know, we heard from Doug that most of the uh, middle-aged patients are choosing a bioprosthesis. Sure. Uh, thanks, Eric. So uh, the question is, who shouldn't we consider a catheter valve prosthetic with bicuspid bi uh, aortic valve disease? And in large part, it's based on both clinical and anatomic considerations. So uh, the anatomic considerations really are a very bulky left ventricular outflow tract or annular calcification where we might uh, worry about the risk of an annular trauma or rupture or a paravalvular regurgitation. Mm -hmm. So those patients who are good surgical candidates may be better suited uh, to have a surgical uh, valve replacement. Uh, patients that have aortopathy, of course, uh, we don't like the idea of putting catheters through that, uh, not only for the sake of needing to treat their, their aorta disease, but the risk that may exist of dissection of that aorta and putting our catheters in. Um, patients with bicuspid aortic valve 
more likely to have a larger annulus than what our prosthetics fit. So the annular sizing is very important. Uh, it's not a large percent of people that are excluded from catheter valve because of too large an annulus, but it does happen. Um, and then again, it's always going to be, even uh, with the anatomy, it's going to be based on the clinical assessment. So uh, two of the cases I showed, one was a 72-year-old that was a great surgical candidate, had a bulky LVOT and so went to surgery. The other patient was only 60, but a tough surgical candidate. And with a bulky LVOT, we still had a good TAVA result. So I think both those considerations are pretty much equally important. That's excellent. We're learning how these, all these technologies complement one another. Samir, what do you think about yeah. valve and valve? So thank you again for uh, inviting us and a great presentation. The question that I, first of all, there is a registry for low-risk uh, bicuspid valve, and they outline which patient we should not do. So the idea is that when patients are low-risk, the anatomical things that Amar mentioned are very important to keep in mind. But there is a low-risk registry where people are using transcatheter valve uh, to understand what the outcomes would be a scientific way. Valve in valve is an amazing treatment option for most patients if the root anatomy is correct mm -hmm. and the original valve is large in size. So nowadays, if we are going to send the patients initially with the idea that they will need valve in valve, the first thing is to have a larger valve implanted at the first surgery is very crucial. Certain valves are better for valve in valve, as you know, because they have... Uh, they have better expansion, they have better inner lumen, so we can put a larger valve inside. And if the coronary arteries are not very close to the prosthetic valve, it is also better. Because one of the limitations that we face is that the coronary arteries are very close to the prosthetic valve. So when we try to expand the valve, and as you know, the newer valves are being developed such that the annular or the ring can be expanded when we put a valve inside of the valve. And so those valves are, of course, consideration if you're planning in a young patient to put a bioprosthetic valve. And in Cleveland Clinic and elsewhere, we are trying to use those valves, trying to understand that what would be the best option. Dr. Tuju and us, we wrote from the United States Registry, the valve in valve experience. And what is very important to know is that compared to the native valve, the valve in valve has less mortality, less stroke, and greater discharge to home. So everything is better when you do valve in valve compared to native valve tower. So uh, in general, this is a great option, and it should be considered in how you make the initial decision about the valve replacement when you are doing, trying, to, uh, trying to discuss these options with the patients. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, we, we absolutely have taken what we've learned from this experience, and we apply it much earlier when we're operating on these patients thinking about what's next. And thinking about what's next, um, uh, Sager, Scalahasty, um, your patients with connective tissue disorders uh, all have that sort of lifelong view a little, a little closer in their face because they, they, they deal with many, uh, many syndromic issues, et cetera. Is bicuspid valve something that's, uh, that's more common in patients with connective tissue disorders like Marfan's and Louis Dietz? And, um, and do you look for it closer? And, and what sort of special uh, things do we need to understand about the patient uh, with connective tissue disorder and the association of bicuspid valve? And then vice versa, does a patient with a bicuspid valve have to worry about potentially having uh, connective tissue disorder diagnosis that goes with it? Thanks, Eric Tan. That was a nice presentation. Thanks so much for inviting me to the panel. Um, as uh, Joanna had mentioned before, you know, uh, the presentation and the genetics of bicuspid aortic valve disease seems very, very heterogeneous. 
Um, so there are no specific mutations that have been much more highlighted in bicuspid valve patients as opposed to, let's say, Marfan with fibrillin gene mutations. But it seems that patients with um, TGF-beta pathway mutations seems to have a higher prevalence of bicuspid aortic valve. But there was a recent paper that was published from, uh, from the Mayer Group where they looked at the, the valve anatomy and its relationship to some of the genetic disorders as well as chromosomal abnormalities. They did not really show that either Marfan or Lois Dietz in their population had a much higher prevalence of bicuspid valve. But they did see them more in chromosomal abnormalities such as Turner's and DiGeorgia's syndrome, and the anatomy was different between those two groups, the, you know, the right and left being more common in Turner's versus in Down syndrome, which is first, one of the first times it's reported that the right and non-fusion is much more common. Hmm. So when we see patients in the clinic, in a lot of connective tissue disease patients, um, bicuspid valve seems to add a layer more of risk for the patients. You know, it's not just they have um, uh, you know, an underlying genetic mutation, but at the same time, you have to worry about, you know, how the bicuspid valve is going to play. The other patients I've seen are, are undifferentiated connective tissue disease. They have got some features, but they don't clearly fit into your category, like somebody with pectus, uh, excavatum, and then have a bicuspid valve. So they have some features of uh, undifferentiated connective tissue disease, uh, but not fit into the criteria for either Marfan's or Lewis Dietz syndrome. Um, and it's important that, you know, these patients are followed much more closely with regards to their bicuspid valve, um, you know, if they have underlying uh, mutations on top of what we have. So the other point to keep in mind is that family screening is an important thing in these patients, even though only reports such as 10% of patients may be familial, but if you have a mutation that's detected in other family members, which share some of the common, like notch one gene mutation, for instance, then you have to look for, you know, bicuspid valve in, in those families much more aggressive. Great, thank you, and thank you to all of uh, my colleagues and distinguished panelists here to to discuss this really uh, critical cardiovascular disease. It's not going away. Uh, uh, two per, almost two percent of us have this problem, and it happens while we're in utero. Uh, we'll be learning uh, for a long time about how best to manage it. And if you're interested in learning more about how we look at bicuspid aortic valve disease at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, please uh, feel free to go online and check out our tall round session dedicated to this, which is now available to everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.